see your greatness, we see how your hand has been upon history, how you've worked all things together for the good, leading up to even the day of our salvation, but Lord, also the days that you use us for the salvation of others. And so Lord, as we look at your Old Testament once again, I pray that you would bless us, that you would show us, Lord, your hand upon history, and we would draw confidence, Father, in our future as well. So we lift up your word once again, just praying that you would bless us with it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you turn and greet your neighbors? Neighbors. Neighbors. Howdy. Is that your stomach? Oh. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 10. We'll be starting at verse 1. Israel is definitely God's chosen people, but there's division. We know that the kingdom has been divided into a northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Last week, we see where things are going completely upside down. Ahab and Jezebel had been king. Ahab's descendants have taken the throne of the northern kingdom. Jezebel was still alive and exercising her influence, and then God has brought judgment. He brought up or raised up this man, Jehu. Jehu was a man who was passionate about the things of the Lord. Matter of fact, unfortunately, to such degree that he even acted in the flesh. We'll see that tonight. But he went through and he executed the king of the southern kingdom, executed the king of the northern kingdom, all in the fulfillment of God's prophecies and what God desired to do. Now, what we're going to see in this man, Jehu, this man who was doing God's will once again, the problem is, is that although maybe he started in the spirit and that God had great plans for him, he started to, and it's the same thing with Jeroboam, and Jeroboam was the man who established the northern kingdom. He started in the spirit, but then he had tried to achieve things in the flesh. And when a person does things in the flesh, they will need to be maintained in the flesh. Just because somebody is used by God does not always mean that they're a godly person. Judas was used by God. The devil's used by God. The Antichrist will be used by God. And we see how Jehu was used by God. But God, at the end of our chapter tonight, is going to pronounce judgment on him. Judgment on him because of his violent nature and his pride, the pride of his heart as well. So what we'll be looking at tonight and next week as well, in chapters 10 and 11, we have a tale of two cities, Samaria and Jerusalem. One is governed by this man, Jehu, and next week we'll be looking at a godly priest. They both have contrasting motives. Both will be used by God, one for his selfish motive, the other one for spiritual obedience and what God has called him to do. Because of that, one kingdom is going to flounder, the other kingdom is going to flourish. But unfortunately, even the flourishing kingdom is going to turn their hearts away from the Lord they will be filled with pride, and they too will receive the judgment of God. We need to look at this as a warning. Not so much our nation, although we do, but God's church within the nation. 
that time is of the essence, that we need to be a people obedient to God, but diligence about doing the Lord's work, but again, always giving glory to God, because it's a fine line to do a work to achieve what we may consider to be some sort of success, some sort of victory, and then stand there and receive of the credit for doing that, which in, well, we know that God enables us to do. So the first thing we're going to see is in chapter 10, we're going to look at this man Jehu, and we're going to look at this man who seems so strong, and even God did bless him to a degree, but we'll see his eventual downfall, and really it's the downfall of all of mankind. So again, last week we were introduced to him. He was a general, and now he's in the process of becoming king of the northern kingdom. God was willing to work with this man in the spirit, but Jehu—I'm sorry, Jehu—he was determined to do God's work according to his flesh, and it's important to establish this. Motivated by his pride. Matter of fact, we are warned against doing such things in Galatians chapter three, verse three. Paul was writing to the church at Galatia, and keep in mind what was happening in that area. These Judaizers were coming in and telling them, if you really want to be spiritual. You've got to go through these Jewish routines. And the one that they were focused upon was circumcision. And so, okay, you receive Jesus Christ by grace through faith. Now, if you really want to be right with God, if you want to be righter with God, if you will, then you need to be circumcised. And Paul's saying, are you so foolish? You guys, you, you dealt with that in the past. You dealt with the law. What was the law? The law was a burden. It was that which they couldn't keep. And and when they were set free, they rejoiced in the freedom which they received through faith in Jesus Christ. But now they're allowing these people to put them back under this bondage. And Paul says again, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Do you remember when you began in the Spirit? Do you remember when you were saved? Do you remember the joy of that day? Do you remember the freedom of that day? I came from a religious background that you were required to keep the religious dictates of that denomination. And again, they were burdensome, but it was a work and could kind of relate to the work. That if I could do all these things, I'd be right with God, although I knew I was never right with God. But then I heard the preaching of the gospel. I heard that which set me free from all of those things, never to go back. Are you so foolish? Have you begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect or mature by the flesh? That's what they were preaching. And any time anybody adds something onto grace for the purpose of maturing in your Christian life or getting closer to God through a work, then it's an act of the flesh and not a word from the Spirit. And so keep in mind what Jehu's testimony is for all the future generations. Later on, there was the prophet Hosea, in Hosea chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, it says, Then the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu, and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. It shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So again, God bringing judgment upon not only his kingdom, but the generations as well. Remember God's charge? God's charge against the people back in Noah's day. Noah's day when man was continually evil, rotten to the core, if you will. God had made that determination that he was going to send the flood and start over again, basically. He took Noah out of the mix and set him aside. He sealed him in the ark, him and his family. But what was the main charge? Well, in chapter 6, verse 13, 
And we can think of so many things. You got some clues there at the beginning of, uh, of Genesis chapter 6. But the main charge was violence. That man was continually violent throughout, well, basically to the core. Well, that's what we're going to see here. Jehu was this overly violent man. So the first thing we're going to see is the violent extermination of the sons of Ahab. This wouldn't necessarily be Ahab's direct sons, but the generations that were around at the time of Ahab. And so chapter 10, verse 1, Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria, and Jehu wrote and sent letters to Samaria and the rulers of Jezreel to the elders and to those who reared Ahab's sons, saying, Now as soon as this letter comes to you, since your master's sons are with you and you have chariots and horses, a fortified city also and weapons, choose the best qualified of your master's son. Set him on his father's throne and fight for your master's house. So he's basically saying, the king is dead. I killed him. Raise up a king and come out and meet me on the field of war. Verse 4. But they were exceedingly afraid and said, look, two kings could not stand up to him. How can we stand? And he who was in charge of the house and he was in charge of the city, the elders also and those who reared the sons sent to Jehu saying, we are your servants. We will do all that you tell us but we will not make anyone king. Do what is good in your sight. Then he wrote a second letter to them saying, If you are for me and will obey my voice, take the heads of the men, your master's son, and come to me at Jezreel by this time tomorrow. Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were rearing them. So it was when the letter came to them that they took the king's sons and slaughtered 70 persons, put their heads in baskets, and sent them to Jezreel. Then a messenger came and told them, saying, They have brought the heads of the king's son, and he said, Lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. As pastor, I've never asked for anybody's head. It's not good for church growth. But can you imagine the heart of somebody who has that power, who's able to wield that influence that would do something like that? We do hard things. Christian nations go to war. It's just a reality. We see it in the scripture. But to see whole, um, wholesale slaughter like that, you can just see the hardness of heart that must exist in order to do that. Now, this was a common practice at the time. We saw it a little bit earlier. But a new king, he would kill off the competition for the crown. And what Jehu was concerned about, he had no genealogy that would bring him to the place of wearing the crown. And so those who did, he wanted to kill off. Now last week we saw where Jehoram, that was Jehoram of the south, he killed off six of his brothers. And so you see the state of mind where Israel was at that time, very far from God. So Jehu is about 25 miles away when we go to Israel, those who are going, you'll see in the Jezreel Valley, it, it's, it's huge. The Bible says all of the armies of the world were gathered there, and you can imagine. I use the example of Chino Hills and the San Bernardino Mountains and the valley that is here, all the way from Pomona to 
um, Rialto or even further than that, and it's about that size. And so you could see that the armies of the world could, could fit there. Well, Jehu's about on one side and, and uh, Samaria's on the other. He's about 25 miles away, yet he's able to defeat a fortified city. There's no doubt about that. It would have taken him months, if not years, to come in and to conquer that city. He didn't have to mobilize his army. He didn't have to wield a weapon. What did he use? His victory came simply from his spoken word. This was the power and ability of many powerful people that grasped the hearts of people. Hitler was one. He was able to make many great promises and achieve rulership over Germany, and we see the downfall of that. Charles Manson was a master manipulator. The false prophet will be the same. And really what we see here is, is the power of the spoken word. Now we understand the power of the spoken word of the gospel because that's got the power of the Holy Spirit. It's able to change lives. The power of man's spoken word, well, it's able to ruin lives. And that's what's happening here. And we'll see that will be that which is happening in the future. In the book of Revelation, we see this is a dynamic of the Antichrist and the rule of the Antichrist because Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 says, Then I saw a lamb open one of the seals. So basically what he's saying here is, is that the tribulation is about to start. And I heard one of the four living creatures, more than likely angels, saying with a loud voice like thunder, Come and see. The Apostle John is writing this. The Apostle John at this point is from the perspective of heaven. So it's as if he's standing on the edge of heaven, if you will, looking at the events that are happening upon the earth. And the first thing that is going to be revealed to us concerning the time of tribulation is going to be the rider of this white horse. And it says, And I look, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, so many people throughout the course of history have mistaken this to be the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, well, white horse. Well, isn't he coming back in a white horse? Yeah, but he's not coming back in chapter 6. He's coming back in chapter 19. So this is not the Lord Jesus Christ. And so really what this is, this is a false Christ. This would be the Antichrist. It says, he who sat on it, this white horse, a man riding on a white horse, would come as a conquering king. He who sat on it had a bow. Now, it just says he had a bow. The idea here is he's going to fight, whatever it might be, wage war, but there's no arrows here. It, it, it's just a bow. He has a crown, so he has authority. Authority was given to him. God has allowed it, but the authority that was given to him was given by God, but through the devil. And he went out conquering and to conquer. Well, as we look at the Antichrist, we don't see him out fighting any literal battles. He, he's using his power of negotiation. He's deceiving the nations the way the devil does. And that's where his, his, his might and his ability to conquer came from. He's more than likely going to be a statesman. He's going to be a master negotiator. I personally believe, as I was in Israel a couple of years ago, you come, on the, you come up... The first day you're in Jerusalem, that's really when you get into Jerusalem, and the next day the bus takes you right to the Mount of Olives. And you come into the Mount of Olives, and you get off the bus, and boom, right before you is the Temple Mount with the Dome of the Rock on top. And you see as you go through that city, Jerusalem is really filled with Palestinians. These are people who are selling their wares and going about their businesses and days. It's not 
you know, there, there's issues that arise without a doubt. There's rarely an issue when you're there because they're trying to make money off of you. If they kill you, you don't buy so much stuff. And so they're of that mindset. But anyway, you see that that Dome of the Rock, if Israel would go up there and remove that mosque that's there, there's going to be a major uprising, not just from the midst of Jerusalem, but all of the Arab world. The Arabs use that as kind of a thorn in Israel's side. We know that God has allowed it because it's not his timing yet. But I really believe that the Antichrist is going to soothe the wound in between the Arabs, the Palestinians and all, and Israel. He's going to negotiate a peace treaty that allows Israel to reestablish the temple to start the sacrifice and also to keep that Dome of the Rock there as well. There's going to be some kind of treaty. We're headed towards that. We were at the Temple Institute. The Temple Institute is in existence for the express purpose of the reestablishment of the temple in Israel and, and its process and, and the sacrifices that it is to make. We, I showed it here and after we came back and I showed it to the people when we had the meeting. But there is already the, the materials and the... Uh, what am I trying to say here? The, well, anyway, the materials that are instruments that are necessary for the temple for the purpose of the sacrifice. There's the menorah. The menorah exists. It's about five feet by three feet. It's made out of solid gold. They, they have it, and actually, when we were there, they had it displayed out in the courtyard. It was in this container that you couldn't get to it, but nonetheless, it's there. They have the altar. It's already there. They have these things, and you can go through, and we will do that when we're there, and you can tour it, and you can see these things. So that if they had the ability, if somebody told them tomorrow to go ahead and build the temple and start the sacrifice, they're ready to go. They're ready and willing to go. What are they missing here? They're missing somebody to bridge the gap between the Arabs and, well, really, Islam and the Jews. And really, I really believe that that's going to be the Antichrist that enters in and causes that time of peace for the first three and a half years of the tribulation. He's going to be a friend of them, but then he's going to turn against Israel. And so Jehu, Jehu is using the power of negotiation here for the express purpose of achieving his will. You must be aware of eloquent speakers who offer no biblical substance. Eloquent speakers, that guy sounds really good. That guy looks really good but they have no biblical substance, and that's the key. The things that they speak, are they of the Lord? Are they from the scriptures? The qualifying power of God for man's speech always has to be the word of God, because if it's not the word of God, then it's just the ideas of man. Verses 9 through 11, So it was in the morning that he went out and stood and said to all the people, you are righteous indeed. I conspired against my master and killed him. But who killed all these? And so he's trying to justify his actions. He said, sure, I know, everybody does know that I killed my master. I killed our king. But look at somebody else killed 70 of his, of his offspring. And so it was somebody else, but in essence it was through his orders. Verse 10, know now that nothing shall fall to the earth of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab, for the Lord has done what he spoke by his servant Elijah. 
So Jehu killed all who remained of the house of Ahab and Jezreel and all of his great men and his close acquaintances and his priests until he left him none remaining. And so he got a little taste of blood and now he's going full throttle. Notice that he speaks the truth, but again, he speaks the truth in a deceptive manner. God who inhabits eternity, he knows what Jahab, or sorry, I keep calling him Jahab, Jehu would do and even ordained him for the task because what he's spoke, speaking of here, as far as from Elisha, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. God had spoken in Amos chapter 3, verse 7, surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret first to his prophets. And so God said he was going to do this. Jehu is understanding that this is what God wants to happen. In 1 Kings 21, 21 through 22, this is not Elisha, but Elijah. Behold, I will bring calamity on you. I will take away your posterity and will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and the house like Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. So those other two people, Jeroboam and Baasha, they were both people who were promised there's not going to be a descendant left of you guys. That was a judgment against them. And God brought another judgment against Ahab, and Jehu is understanding that this is the fulfillment of it. So remember, God inhabits eternity. God dwells in the future. For the born-again believer, that's a really good thing. We're always entering into what God has for us. But as far as Ahab, bringing back to 1 Kings 21, if you were there at that time, God inhabited eternity and understood and knew that his future generations were going to be destroyed. And this isn't because of Jehu. This is because God has allowed this. God brought this judgment upon this most evil man. So why does God do these things? Well, constantly these things are interjected so that we would know who is in control. There was an earthquake today in Iraq and Iran. They found, uh, the news said that, I think it was 7.1, they said thousands of people were hurt. Um, how do we know when the next earthquake is going to happen? How do we know when the next tsunami is going to come? How do we know when the next flood is, 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 is going to come upon us? We don't know these things. How do we know when we fly we're even going to make it to Israel? And you can start thinking of these things. You can start dwelling upon these things. And you can start getting, you can become psycho thinking about these things. But ultimately we understand and know who's the one who's in control. And that's the thing that God, that's the point that God's constantly, as we see these men and we see the evilness of these men's hearts, God's constantly reminding that I knew this was going to happen. This didn't catch me by surprise. I planned these things. I understand these things. I didn't force evil men to act like evil, but God understanding the nature of evil men allowed these things to happen. And again, God is in control, and history is always being worked out according to God's will. History, his story. So just think of the tribulation. Think of those people who are here during the time of the tribulation. And as we've seen those great things that are happening during that time, somebody could open up their Bible and read about it. You know, and just think about that. You have somebody who's 
not saved, don't want to hear it, don't want to hear your Jesus and all of that, then all of a sudden everybody disappears. They realize, well, maybe there was some truth to that, and I kind of remember something about this. I saw that movie, Left Behind, and so I'll go to the Bible and find out what's going on. They go to the Bible, they get saved, and they, they start hearing about these great cataclysmic events. And it's all they have to do is open up their Bible, and they'll see these things that are happening. Because God said they're going to happen, and so they're going to happen. We don't know when these things are going to happen, but those people who are alive during that time will surely know. They'll know about the beheadings and all of those things. And the idea is, is that you have an opportunity, even today, to avoid that by just simply coming to Christ, avoiding the wrath of God, avoiding the wrath of God through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's an amazing thing, the peace that surpasses understanding that we're able to have because of that. It's what God offers to his people. It's what God offered to Israel if they would have stayed unified, stayed as one, and sought after the Lord. But they didn't do that. They sought after other gods. There was the split of the kingdom. And basically, God says, if you want to be under bondage to people who have given their heart to an idol, then this is what's going to happen. And it destroyed both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. It was by the grace of God and the plans of God that the southern kingdom wasn't completely destroyed. We know they went to Babylonian captivity and eventually were restored. But God's whole idea, whole intent in all of this is that man would repent. This is always God's intent for mankind. It's always, all the way up until the great white throne judgment, all the way up until death, it's God's desire that man would repent and get right with him. But as far as this man Jehu, Psalm 12, 2, they speak idle, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips, and a double heart they speak. A double heart, that's kind of the deceptive speaking that he's speaking of. Yeah, I killed my master, but look at these guys. They killed 70 of his offspring. And you say, Jehu, it was under your orders. And so he's trying to make himself look good. He's double speaking. That would be the problem that we would have with our politicians today or anybody who's not truthful with us. Singleness of heart, the best place you can see singleness of heart is the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. Verse 12. And he arose and departed and went to Samaria. On the way at Beth Ekhed to the shepherds, Jehu met with the brothers of Ahaziah, king of Judah. So Ahaziah, if you recall, he was executed. He's the king of the southern kingdom. And now he comes upon these, well, Jehu met with the brothers of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and said, Who are you? So they answered, We are the brothers of Ahaziah. We have come down to greet the sons of the king and the sons of the queen mother. So they, they apparently don't know that Jezebel, the sons of the queen mother, or the queen mother would be Jezebel. They probably are unaware of her death. They have to raise a king up from themselves because their king has been killed. And so they're probably going to the north in order to confer. They're probably going to the north to confer with Jezebel. She wielded such evil but definitely influence over so many. Verse 14, and he, Jehu, said, take them alive. So they took them alive and killed them at the well of Beth Akhed, 42 men, and he left none of them. These would-be men of the southern kingdom, they were coming to make peace, but again, they were under the sway of the wicked one. The wicked one in this particular case would have been Jezebel. Well, Jehu here, he has stepped over a line. He stepped over a line. God has been using him, but this time he went just 
a little too far. Because what was he doing? He was killing the sons of Ahab. But now, well, their father, these men here, Jehoram, their grandfather is Jehoshaphat. They are not considered king, I'm sorry, sons of Ahab, but they're descendants of David. Descendants of David are, if you will, not to be messed with. God's given them great promises, and, well, they're coming up against that. Although they're able to wipe out the sons of Ahab, no man will ever be able to wipe out the sons of David because, again, God gave great promises. In, um, it's actually in 2 Samuel, it's not up on the board, chapter 7, verse 12, God speaking to King David. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So he's speaking of future generations. He shall build a house for my name. We know, excuse me, Solomon built the temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all of these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke, the prophet spoke to David. So God's given King David some very rich prophecies that we know are fulfilled through the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way a kingdom can be established forever is by and through God. As Jesus Christ is a descendant of David, we know the reality of that. And so since Messiah was going to be a descendant of David, you're not to mess with the lineage of David because you're messing with God and you're messing with God's promises here is the idea. And so this man Jehu, in his zeal, in the flesh, trying to maintain in the flesh, which started in the spirit, He's gone off in a bad direction. Verse 15 through 17. Now when he, when Jehu departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said to him, Is your heart right as my heart is toward your heart? And Jehonadab answered, It is. Jehu said, If it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand and he took him up into his chariot. Then he said, Come with me and see the zeal for the Lord. So they had him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he killed all who remained of Ahab in Samaria till he had destroyed them according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. So now I'm sure he's killing cousins, he's killing friends, he's killing associates. So again, just a very bloody man. Now this man Jehonadab, he's a Rechabite. Rechabites were looked upon with great respect. And really what he's doing is he's using this man to validate his actions. Now the Rechabites, they come from the Midianites. They entered into the promised land with the tribes of Israel, but since they're not of the tribes of Israel, they have no inheritance in the land. So they have no property. They're descendants as, well, they're a people who do not drink wine, nor do they build houses, nor do they sow seed. Again, they have no inheritance. nor plant, nor have any vineyard, all of their days they were to dwell in tents. And so they were a nomadic people as they were before, so they are even during this time. 
But the difference, the thing that sets them apart is, is that they heard the word of God, if you will, the great promises of God, and they want to be a part of it. Remember Israel, what we were told in, in the book of Isaiah? They're to be a light to the nations. They're to be a witness to the nations so that the nations would be able to partake of the promises of God to Israel where these people are. And so really what it is, I, I would imagine the people of the land would see their dedication and their desire to be part of God's plan. They're willing to give up much. They're not drinking wine. They're not building houses, sowing seed, nor planting, or having vineyards. And all their days they were simply to dwell in tents. And so they're very faithful in this. We just saw that this morning, if you remember in Hebrews chapter 11, verses uh, 9 through 10, that Abraham, although he had a place given to him by God, his inheritance was actually God. He was a soldier. He lived in tents. He wasn't to have any permanent property during his time. His descendants would, but not him. But his faith would always be, be directed towards God and God's word. And so these people, these Rechabites, they worshiped the God of Israel and they were faithful to God. But Jehu, again, is using this man simply to justify his actions. Next, we have the violent extermination of the prophets of Baal, verses 18 all the way through to verse 28. Then Jehu gathered all the people together and said to them, now he's in the capital city, keep in mind, that the queen has just been killed. Queen Jezebel has just been killed. Now, she was a foreigner who Ahab had married, and she brought in her way of worship, and she worshiped Baal. And she also encouraged so many others to worship Baal. She even influenced the southern kingdom, and there was worship of Baal, this false god there. And so Jehu has now come into the city that is completely overtaken in this worship. And Jehu gathered all the people together, verse 18, and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, Jehu will serve him much. Now he's using deception here in order to consolidate them all. Verse 19, now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal, all of his servants and all of his priests. Let no one be missing, for I have a great sacrifice for Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu acted deceptively with the intent of destroying the worshipers of Baal. And Jehu said, Proclaim a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. Then Jehu sent throughout all Israel, all the worshipers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. So they came to the temple of Baal, and the temple of Baal was full from one end to the other. And he said to the one in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out the vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. So we brought out the vestments for them, probably for the purpose of identification. Verse 23. Then Jehu and Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, went into the temple of Baal and said to the worshipers of Baal, Search and see that no servants of the Lord are here with you, but only the worshipers of Baal. So they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had appointed for himself 80 men on the outside and had said, If any of the men whom I have brought into your hand escapes, whoever lets him escape, it shall be his life for the life of the other. And they knew that he would follow through on that. Verse 25. Now it happened, as soon as he had made an end of offering, the burnt offering that Jehu said to the guard and to the captains, Go in and kill them. Let no one come out. And they killed them with the edge of the sword, 
and the guards and the officers threw them out and went into the inner room in the temple of Baal and they brought the sacred pillars out of the temple of Baal and burnt them. They broke down the sacred pillar of Baal and tore down the temple of Baal and made it a refuse dump to this day. They made a toilet out of it to this day. Thus Jehu destroyed Baal from Israel. Now, it's important to understand, you know, what was he doing here? I mean, there's some biblical commentators that say, and I'll look at this in just a minute, that say, say what he did was not right. But he does have biblical mandate to do what he did. Now, in Deuteronomy, again, the final instructions before Israel entered into the land, and this was the land before Israel entered in that was filled with the worship of false gods, God told them, Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 1, if there arises from among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and he gives you a sign or a wonder, that sign or wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you saying, let us go after other gods, well this is a description of the prophets of Baal, which you have not known and let us serve them, then you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreamers shall be put to death. And so I look at this. Now, we're looking at this biblically to understand, you know, he massacred a lot of people here. Is this right in the sight of God? And so you look at these prophets of Baal. Could they possibly prophesy anything proper before the Lord? No. They were leading the people astray. They were leading the people away from God. Now, I've looked at quite a few commentators that, you know, made reference to this section of Scripture, and a lot of them have said what Jehu did here was improper because he lied and deceived. He did lie, and he did deceive. There's no doubt about that. But if we say that Jehu was wrong in what he did, then we would need to bring charges against the Jewish midwives, because what did they do? Pharaoh told them to kill the newborn Jewish babies in uh, Exodus chapter 1, and they lied, and they didn't do it. We'd have to bring charges against Rahab. Remember, when the spies had come, she hid them, and she lied to the people who were coming after the, the people of Jericho. In all cases, what we need to consider is, what was the greater good for God's glory? And so... I really believe what Jehu did, I, I think he was an evil man. I think he was a bloodthirsty man. I think he overdid it in so many different ways. But I think in this particular case, it was definitely the greater good. Now, we have to be very careful not to justify sin for God's purpose. Because I know how you are. I know how I am. We so easily do that. We can justify our actions. I mean, it's all spelled out in black and white what is sin and what isn't. In Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How can we who died to sin live any longer in it? But as far as what Jehu did here, I truly believe that it was of the Lord. He was cleansing the land. He went in there, into the city. He knew they were there. He was the king's, the former king's general, so he was well aware of how things were. And as he came in there, he realized it was completely given over to Baal, and he understood that this needs to, these people need to be cleansed. Unfortunately, what we see next, thirdly, is the violent extermination of Jehu's soul. 
we see how his soul was not right in the sight of God. Look at verse 29. However, Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebet, who had made Israel sin, that is, from the golden calves that were at Bethel and Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in doing what is right in my sight, and so this is God confirming what he had just done, and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. But Jehu took no heed to walk. He took no heed in his personal relationship with God. He took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all of his heart, for he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam who had made Israel sin. What is the sin of Jeroboam? Well, we're told very clearly by the word of God, and this is what I think is the main point that is being discussed here when we're told that Jehu did not walk in God's word in Exodus 20, verses 4 through 5. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness that is anything in the heaven above, that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Well, if you recall, when Jeroboam, there was Solomon. Solomon died. His son, Rehoboam, he assumed the kingdom. Jeroboam came up against him. And because they couldn't come to an agreement, Jeroboam, the country was divided then. Jeroboam took the ten northern tribes. Rehoboam had two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Jeroboam, he was concerned about the people because the people were still going down to Judah. They were still going to Jerusalem to worship God. And he was concerned, if I got a bunch of people going down there, their hearts are going to be turned against me and I'm going to lose the kingdom. Although this was really God that established it. He started in the spirit, but now he's going to determine in the flesh to try to perfect what was started in the spirit. And so what he did was he told them not to go and he initiated the worship of golden calves that were to be representatives of Yahweh. But look how subtle this is. I just read you Exodus chapter 20 verses 4 through 5. You are to have no other carved image that you bow down before and you worship. Well, he's trying to perfect in the flesh what was started in the spirit. And so what does he do? He makes this golden calf. This has false God implications, false Egyptian God implications. And so I would imagine his justification, we're still worshiping God. And that was the idea. They, they were still worshiping God, but they were not worshiping God how he had commanded them to worship him. And anytime you set an icon or a statue or whatever before the nose of man, he loses focus of faith and he starts to put spiritual value on that which is before him. We see this, and we see it in the Catholic Church. I remember these statues that were so holy. I remember I broke a rosary, and I threw it in the trash when I was at school, when I went to Catholic school. I got in trouble for that because it was a holy rosary. I think it needed to be burned or buried. I don't remember exactly what needed to happen to it. But in my mind, it was just a bunch of beads. And that's really all that it was. It's the heart. It's the heart that desires to pray and seek after God. And so this man, he had established. This is the sin of Jeroboam that Jehu is now once again reestablishing and participating in. 
when we go to Israel, one of the trips is to Tel Dan. Dan, Tel Dan is the northernmost part of that country. And in the northernmost part of that northernmost part of the country, there's the foundation that is there of that time when they were worshiping those golden calf, that golden calf. Matter of fact, as I've mentioned before, they have done excavations in the area and they have found little golden calves, or little calves anyway, I don't know if they're golden or not, but more than likely these were just keepsakes so that you could take home. But they've confirmed that this is the area that this type of worship, and so he established it both in Dan and Bethel, in the north and the south, in order to make it, I guess, more convenient. The priests that pers- uh, presided over this practice, they were not Levites, but they were basically whoever wanted to be a priest at the time. The worship was an abomination to God and brought about Jeroboam's downfall. God had told him in 1 Kings chapter 14 that because he had established this, he was going to lose the kingdom, that his descendants were going to be destroyed. To form anything and call it a representation of God and then bow down and worship it is sin in the sight of God. And again, this goes to statutes, icons, relics, that are worshipped today, that's an abomination before the Lord. And so you can ask, well, why do you have a dove behind you? Has anybody worshipped it? And, that, and that, that's the key. It, it's the worship of these things. I was told not to have a Christmas tree when I first got saved because, you know, it was an idol and all of these things. But at some point it kind of hit me, we've never bowed down and worshipped the Christmas tree. And so, you know, we've we got to take the word of God in its proper context and see really what it's saying. I mean, this second commandment, it's very clear in what the problem is, and that's what we got to follow through on. Jehu, because Jeroboam did it, they established this golden calf for the express purpose of worshiping, well, in their mind, they're worshiping God, but they worshiped for, uh, they worshiped it. They worshiped through it is what they would say, but it was contrary to what we see in the second commandment. And so God rewarded Jehu for obedience, but he also punished him for his sin. The four generation of kings that followed, were, we'll see here Jehoahaz today, and then later on Joash and Jeroboam II and Zechariah. Well, Jehu, he killed Jehoram and he took his crown Later on, Jehu's great-great-grandson, Zechariah, was assassinated and his crown was taken and Jehu's descendants ceased to sit on the throne. Even for Jehu personally, what would seem to be a blessing became a curse in his kingdom and that he was constantly harassed. His kingdom was not blessed by God. We see this in verses 32 through 33. In those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel and Hazael. Now, Hazael we looked at last week. He was the established by the hand of God, king of Syria. Hazael conquered them them in all the territory of Israel from the Jordan eastward all the land of Gilead, Gad, Reuben, and, and Manasseh. Gilead was a northern area that they had taken control over. Now, if you remember Gad, Reuben, and it's really the half-tribe of Manasseh, those are the guys who wanted the property on the east side of the Jordan. Who, Well, they did come over and help fight, but they didn't come over and inherit land in the promised land because they didn't do that. They were the first people who were attacked. Now, for Jehu, he's lost his buffer. He had a buffer there of those kingdoms. They're gone. Now the enemy is right there. Enemy's right there at his very doorstep. So it says that, again, verse 33, from the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh, from 
uh, Eroer, which is by the river Arnon, including Gilead and Bashan. So basically, he's, basic, he's t talking about the northern and the eastern area. He's in essence, is surrounded. There's absolutely no security in that. So that was the death of his soul. And then lastly, we see the extermination of Jehu himself. See Jehu's death, verses 34 through 36. Now the rest of the acts of Jehu, all that he did and all of his might, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehu rested with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. Then Jehoahaz, his son, reigned in his place. And the period that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 years. 28 years puts him at the longest reigning king in the southern area. And God gave him that because he did do the will of God at times. But all of this, all that he's done, see, the ends never justify the means. The ends of what we do, the purpose of what we do, we've got to do things God's way. This man was a trying to achieve in the flesh, which God started in the spirit. And, and I think about that and as we're all imperfect people and we rely upon the grace of God. There's no doubt about that. But one thing that convicts me that my kids look to me and they respect me. My grandkids think that I've hung the, hung the moon. And what's so funny? I may have done that. You don't know. But just the respect that they have for me. And that's conviction to me. Because that, that responsibility that I have, not as a pastor, but, but just as a Christian man, the responsibility that I have before them to conduct my life as God has called me to, because far be it from me that my kids or my grandkids would suffer because of what I have done, even suffer in the future because of maybe how, what I've done today. You've seen people as they have fallen sexually or they've fallen whatever it might be and, and how they've brought disgrace upon the ministry. And I always wonder, what has that done to the people who, who have looked up to him? There's been people in Calvary Chapel, well-known people in Calvary Chapel who have fallen in this manner. And I remember one that's well-known. And I remember thinking about his wife and thinking, this woman, this woman has lost her husband because of this. He didn't die, he just sinned. This woman has, has lost her pastor, he was removed. This woman has lost her church. And, and I just see what this, and, and not just the woman, but, but the kids as well. And just see the damage that has been done. And we need to see in this man, Jehu, the great responsibility. Yeah, it's one thing to be used by God, but I must be used by God with a pure heart before a holy God. Mark 8.36 applies to what Jehu, because he did reign longer than any other king. But what profit does it have a man if he gains the whole world? But in the end, he forfeits his soul. This man had no peace as he was seated upon the throne because the enemy was at the very gates. And so... We see these lessons because there's death and there's destruction. There's those who were killed and destroyed because they were disobedient to God. But then there's the destruction of the soul of a man because he's acted in the flesh and having to deal with that through his lifetime and understanding and knowing through the prophet that his kids are going to pay the price for what he has done. That's a horrible thing. It's something that we need to consider. Holiness, holiness isn't just there to keep us in line. It's to minister. It's to minister to the unsaved. It's also there to minister to our future generations. Father, I just pray that we would truly have a heart. Lord, that we would not be focused upon our flesh, but we would set aside apart the things of our flesh and seek after your spirit 
This man Jehu had such great opportunity, wiping out the prophets of Baal without a doubt, but he could have established the proper worship according to your word once again, and the country and himself, they would have flourished. God would have set a hedge of protection around him, and he would have found great contentment. But instead, he acted in the flesh and destroyed the soul of the people. And so, Father, I just pray for ourselves that we would draw the lessons that you have for us here, making these things applicable to our lives. Father, I lift up those who've come out tonight, that you would go before them, that you would bless them, that you would protect us as we travel home. And Lord, just be with us, understanding that we're entering into what you have prepared for us this coming week. And so, Lord, we just give you all the glory. I pray, Father, that we would strip ourselves of our pride and just simply seek after your spirit, that you would be glorified, Lord, through all that we do, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please?